Good evening. Welcome to Timberwood Timberwood Church. I just about forgot where I was at for a second. Um, we have a slight change tonight. Um, Eric was supposed to be here, but he is uh, kind of in a quarantine position <laughs> because of one of his family members. Um, and so we're waiting to hear back. So hopefully we'll get him back by Sunday. Hopefully tests are negative. So that's why he's not able to be with us tonight. Um, but we do want to uh, stand in. We're in Second Peter 2. Um, it was uh, about a week or a week and a half ago, and um, I can't remember what exactly happened. I don't know if Tanya and I had worked out together or whether we were at home and we had finished up, the whatever it was, right? And so we decided to do carryout, right? And through this whole thing, we've been trying to do carryout at various restaurants because we haven't felt entirely comfortable eating in restaurants, but still wanting to support local restaurants. And so we ordered at the Main Street Ale House, and you probably can already guess what I ordered. Um, I ordered the bulgogi bowl, which, uh, you know, if you have a restaurant in the area that does kimchi, you want to try it. They're, it's pretty good stuff. And then we ordered, I think, probably Asian tacos, maybe some chicken wings or something. At any rate, okay? So I go to pick up the order, right? And I walk in the front door, and there I notice two individuals, one of whom I know very well, one of whom I don't know at all. And the one who I know very, very well says, John! And I'm like, hey! You know, like to my friend. You know how you do when people are sitting at a high top table. Hey! You know, and, and then my friend's friend, okay, which is a different friend's friend from Sunday, um, says, well, who's John? And I'm like, oh, I'm in insurance. Because I really didn't want to have the conversation, right? And um, I said, I'm insurance, you know, kind of end of life issues, beginning of life issues. And then my friend said, and everything in between. And, and so my friend's friend then's like, hey, does John have a business card? And I just turned around and waited at the bar and picked up my pickup order and left without. So, so what do you do, right? I mean, what do you do? Because it was, hey, do you have a business card? It wasn't like, I want to buy insurance from you. Give me a quote on my auto policy. It was like, hey, you got to, what do you do? You know, how do you handle situations um, that are challenging. Now, now some of you can have a little fun with it, you know, kind of like I went home and I said, you know, Tiny, look, there's no switch. No switch. I can't turn it off. <laughs> Come on, that was worth a bigger laugh than that. Give me a break, for goodness sakes. Second Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, capital M, which probably means, yeah, thank you very much, um, who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of this, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, actually the Greek word isn't hell, but it is tartaros, um, which is the um, in Greek mythology, it's the underworld, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, <clears throat> If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Kind of an interesting combination, don't you think? Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in mighty and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions, a speechless donkey, spoke with a human voice, and restrained the prophet's madness." That's a great story, by the way. If you don't remember it from Numbers, it's what? Numbers 21, 22, somewhere in that neck of the woods, the talking, talking donkey story. These are waterless springs and mist driven by storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. Proverbs 26 And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Not a super uplifting text. When we sat for lunch today, we kind of had these initial impressions and, and uh, you know, kind of enjoying, one of our members enjoyed really the, the Noah angels lots, okay, and, and how that all played out and the, and the, historical, the, the historical reality of that. Uh, another one of our members said, if, if you're going to teach, you better know what you're talking about. Yikes. Another one of our members said, the consistency of God, yesterday, today, forever. And then a question about this, better to not know than to know and turn away. And related to that, what, what do you do when you, when you see someone that's been in a bad spot, and then they got in a good spot, and then they go back to the bad spot? And a final member talked about the, the reality of, 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 of these heretics seem, seem to, to, to be unable to distinguish between bondage and light and, and the persistence of that delusion, to mistake that, to not get that right, to look at what's good and call it bad and look at what's bad and call it good is perhaps the greatest challenge that we're exploring in this text. 
So let's jump into it. Verse 1, these false teachers, prophets arose. And, and basically, Peter, what Peter's doing here is saying, okay, this is a thing that has happened, you know, arguably happened for the people of God throughout the people of God's existence. And so he's referencing Old Testament passages, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, probably Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 13 says if you have a false prophet, you kill him. <laughs> if uh, Deuteronomy 18, you know a false prophet if the things that the prophet says don't come true. And then go see Deuteronomy chapter 13 and kill the false prophet, which kind of ups the ante if you're going to substitute prophet for teacher and wanting to have individuals who want to teach and are in a position to teach but should realize the weight that they have when they're teaching. And so it's one of those texts that for me personally speaks mightily to my soul and, 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 and challenges me because the weight is great. And, and we can't escape, bless you, we can't escape the reality that all of us, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, are to, are to have the ability to influence those that are around us. And so when we provide counsel for someone who exists around us, are, are we willing to acknowledge the weight of that responsibility? One of my professors back in seminary, he's since retired, um, Bob Stein, um, the, back in the early 90s, and he had uh, wrote an article for um, Dictionary of the Gospels um, and Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and the Gospels. At any rate, it's more like an encyclopedia, and so you can look up various topics, and one of the topics in there is divorce, and so he talked it about in our New Testament class, about how when he wrote this exercise, okay, wrote this article about divorce and remarriage, how he was like, I, I really, I realize the weight of my words. I mean, I'm not discussing a Greek verb, I can't remember his exact quote, I'm providing advice for someone going through an extremely challenging time in their life and then making a decision about what the next step is for a challenging time in your life. And I think that's getting at the weight that exists for an individual who would speak on behalf of God. The destructive heresies that seem to be getting at here is Jesus isn't who he says he is. And this is what they're saying about Jesus. They're denying the master. They're denying the claim that the master has on their lives. And I think we need to let that one weigh on us just a little bit. Even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. I mean, it's, it's, it's really not enough, according to the biblical record, to, to pray a prayer and have that be enough for eternal life. Um, I, I don't want to convince anyone that they're not saved, but, but if the only thing that I have done as a follower of Jesus Christ is say, Jesus Christ, come into my life, please forgive my sins, and I don't realize that there's a claim on my life that Jesus Christ makes, then I'm missing something. 
And, and I think, in part, one of the destructive heresies may have been something along these lines because of Peter's words, even denying the master who bought them. Jesus has a claim on their lives, and it's sort of this, well, I want a little bit of Jesus, but I really don't want to give my life to Christ Verse 2, this idea of sensuality, what does it mean? Um, usually when the New Testament is using this phrase, it's referring to something related to um, sexuality, uh, human sexuality, it's referring to immorality. Um, it literally means shameful ways. And so I think we could center on that aspect of, 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 of sexual immorality, I, I think we can also widen it just a little bit. And, and shameful waves would be any place where, where Christ is not at the front, at the forefront. The ways of truth will be blasphemed. The way, you have to remember that the early followers of Jesus Christ were called followers of the way. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of this, many of them will follow their shameful ways. Is there a hint of Epicureanism here? Okay, there's, there's a couple of Greek philosophies when the New Testament is written. Epicureanism, Stoicism. Stoicism, overly simplified, is, you know, the stiff upper lip. Um, Epicureanism is, is this sort of embracing of, of pleasure and achieving, you know, a relatively pain-free life. Are shameful ways a rejection of, of some of those philosophies? Is it pure immorality, or is it any rejection of the way of truth that the followers of the way follow? That bad is good, and that good is bad. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, this idea of greed, exploiting with false words. How can the false teachers, how can I make myself look good? How can I add to my bank account? How can I get more, more influence, more glory, more power? Um, unfortunately, because of, of, of the time constraints I had today, I got a text message from my friend David, and, and basically it was a, uh, a podcast um, that was on the Holy Post, um, and, and David said this, the podcast kind of aligned with today's message and how the evangelical industry has allowed their focus to champion success on the number of followers, dollars made, social media following. And the episode is episode 450, the evangelical industrial complex. And, and it's this idea that people would almost rather make money off the gospel then they would see people authentically come to faith in Jesus Christ. I haven't listened to the podcast, so I don't know all of the conclusions of the podcast, but what Peter is arguing for is be careful of a false teacher who is about lining his or her own pocketbook. The greed that drives them, the ability to exploit with false words, and you see the themes in, the, in, their, in their message of how they look good, how they can add to their bank account, how they can get more, how they can get more influence, more power, more glory. And to that, we say that's not fair. 
And to that, Peter says, don't worry. Their condemnation from long ago, this is just an absolutely intriguing turn of phrase. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. It's not that God has forgotten. It, it's not that it's put on the, it, it, it's on a slow burner, okay? It, it's on a slow burn, but God hasn't forgotten. God is paying attention, and their destruction is, is not asleep. And then talks about the historical reality. If God did not spare angels, if God did not spare the world but preserve Noah, if God did not spare Sodom and Granola, You want to stay away from Sodom and Granola. I got to tell you, it's, it's not, it's just, it's a bad place. These three examples. The, the ones that are most interesting to me is obviously Noah and Lot. Be, because both of these individuals are portrayed as individuals who are righteous. And, and yet we know within a few chapters of Noah being rescued on his ship, okay, um, he, is, uh, he finds himself enjoying the fruit of his own vineyard. Um, and he gets drunk. And he passes out naked in his tent. And one of his sons comes in and laughs at him, which I would have been that son. I would have thought that was the funniest thing in the world. okay. And that son gets condemned. And I'm always like, why? What are you talking about? That's funny if the old man can't hold his booze. That is a riot. So all of a sudden we're like, wait a second. Noah was righteous, yet he behaved this way. And then he condemns the son who's like, no, you really screwed up. Because the other two sons were like, oh, dad's wasted. Maybe wasted again. We don't know that. I did say that. Okay. We don't know that. Extra biblical, I'm clearly outside the lines, and I acknowledge that. The other two sons walk in with a cloak over their shoulder, you know, back up to their dad, throw the cloak and cover him, right? Noah is righteous, saved. His sons are righteous and are saved. Lot, same story, different generation. Okay, Lot's hanging out in Sodom and Gomorrah. And first off, you know, if, 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 if I say, what are the sin, what's the sin that Sodom and Gomorrah is condemned for, what comes to mind? You don't have to say it out loud. What comes to mind? Because that's the one that comes to my mind too, right? It's interesting. Check out Ezekiel 16. Okay? God is like raining down, okay, on Israel. Okay? Chapter 16 is entitled, The Lord's Faithless Bride. Okay, as you get to chapter, uh, verse 48 of chapter 16, check this out about Sodom and Gomorrah. As I live, declares the Lord, your, Lord God, your, system saw, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Okay, so God is comparing Sodom and Gomorrah to Israel. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel 16, that's what it says. I mean, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not just sexual sin, okay? 
And that gets into my whole idea of this whole text, okay, of the thing that we're dealing with isn't one small sin that we visibly see and can visibly condemn, wherever that might be, usually a sin that we don't have a problem with, but the root of it, the root of that sin is self being elevated above God. And so a person who elevates themselves above anything else isn't going to have a God perspective when it comes to human sexuality. When a person who elevates self above them, above God and anything else is going to have a perspective of greed. A person who elevates self above everything else is going to be a person who rejects, well, later in the text, the combination was sexuality, defiling passion, and despising authority. And so we see these sins, right? And some of them were like, oh, yeah, go after that one. Some of them were like, ah, especially the defiling authority one. I'm just like, I hate authority. I really hate authority. But the root, the root is self. When self gets elevated to an ungodly position. So there was something unique about Noah and Lot that, that God says, no, no, it's, it's, it's worthy rescuing you And Peter using them as an example of someone who was worthy of being rescued. But I don't think it's that they were perfect. I mean, Lot's story, he gets rescued, right? And a few chapters later, his daughters get, his, get him drunk and crazy stuff happening. Which, sidebar, just in case you're interested, the Bible seems to indicate that bad things happen when you get drunk. For whatever that's worth. So, so what do Lot and what do Noah have in common? Because they're not perfect. But, but still they are worthy or judged worthy, called righteous. And, and as far as I can tell, the text doesn't tell us. And so I'm going to give it a guess. And please, for those of you that are here, you know that I'm more than willing to engage with a guess that's wrong. I think it's they're willing to listen. They're not perfect, but they're willing to listen. Noah, as we know the story, here's, here's the voice of God telling him, and he's willing to listen. Lot, here's the voice of God. If, if he doesn't leave the city, he gets taken out. If he turns around, he gets turned into a pillar of salt. Like his wife did. A friend of mine called me the other day. She was studying in, the, in, 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 uh, in, in Genesis and says, what do you think it means that life's White, uh, Palat's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. And I said, well, I, I think it means she was turned into a pillar of salt. Funny. Maybe not. I think it's their willingness to listen. I think it's their willingness to pay attention to God. 
And that's played off against the false prophet, the false teacher, who isn't willing to listen, who is only in it for self, and that God will rescue the righteous. God will rescue those who listen to him, and God will punish the evil and wicked. Even though in some temporal sequence, it seems like they have escaped, they'll still be punished. Because the evil and wicked seem to stay locked into the pathway that they are on. And the crazy thing on, the pathway they are on, never fulfills. It, it never satisfies. I mean, if you've ever gotten to the point in your life where you've done something over and over and over again, and you're like, it just doesn't satisfy. It, it doesn't provide any meaning. doesn't provide any value. Why am I doing this? I mean, imagine getting caught in that and not being able to escape. They never are able to get off this unfulfilling but ever-increasing pathway. They never ever get to the point of asking, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? They're, They're so confident in their behavior. They're so certain. Verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Yeah, go after the people who misuse sexual expression or God's best intent when it comes to sexual expression. (laughs) Then the next phrase, and despise authority. Whoops, just got me too. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Best guess what Peter is getting at here is he's comparing these bold false teachers against the, the aforementioned angels who have been rejected, okay? And Peter's saying, even though the angels who have been rejected are, 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 are more powerful, that the angels that are still aligned with God don't speak a blasphemous judgment against the bad angels. There's a sense of of just staying in their lane. But these false teachers, they'll take on anyone, take on anything. They don't even think about their behavior. And their behavior, born to be caught and destroyed. And this is an interesting twist that I'm not going to wrestle with tonight at all. So are they born to be caught and destroyed, or do they become this way? The text says born to be caught and destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery. Again, we go after that one. Insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Again, we have this other one, greed, right? 
They forsake the right way. They've gone astray. The way of Balaam is, I mean, he's the Old Testament prophet, right? Not really a man of God type of prophet who basically does prophecy for money. I think it's, what is it? Numbers 22 and following, if you want to check it on your own time. And, and basically, he gets rebuked by his donkey, <laughs> who's like, yeah, we shouldn't go any further because the angel of the Lord is going to kill us. These are waterless springs and mist driven by the storm. Again, talking about these false teachers, these false prophets, although false teachers is the phrase that Peter is using. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They speak loud, loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves. The nature of a false teacher. The offer of freedom, but really they're just slave to a different master. And then this intriguing close, right? For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become for them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So it seems like they were in a bad spot, they got into a good spot, and now they're in a really, really bad spot. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. And there's a part of me that goes, that's got to be hyperbole, right? And yet I think about it because I, I have known people who have like wrestled with addictions, right? And, and, and folks who would say, I'm an alcoholic. And so they, they, they're, and then they get, they get dry, they get clean, they get in a state of recovery, and then they fall back again. And, and it seems as though the disease from here to here d- didn't take a break even though when they took a break in the middle, they weren't drinking. And that the disease over here, once they start drinking again, is like they had never stopped drinking. And so I'm like, okay, is, is this just describing that reality that, that we know? That a person who is addicted to alcohol gets clean for a period of time, and then all of a sudden starts drinking again. It's like they never stopped drinking. I mean, is that what's being described here? For it would have been better for them to have never known. But that has to be hyperbole, right? What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So what can we say to these things? Well, first of all, me as a teacher and the responsibility that I bear when I stand here. And, and I, I want you to know that I don't take that responsibility lightly. Early in the life of Timberwood Church, a gentleman by the name of Milo Arkema, who was instrumental in us getting no, going, but you probably don't know him, said to me, of all the things that you shall never do, you shall never leave your sermon preparation on the table. He's like, it doesn't matter if hospitality doesn't show up. It doesn't matter if the coffee is, is horrible tasting. It doesn't matter if, 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 if kids don't show up. It doesn't matter if ushers don't show up. It doesn't matter if the music's bad. It doesn't, it, but the one thing that you can't do, 
He didn't even say deliver good sermons. He just said, don't let your sermon preparation lack. And of course, being a person who doesn't like authority, about a month after that, I let it lack. It was early 2004. I still remember. We're in the community center. But that Sunday, we were taking a break because they had to use it for something else. And so we were at the gym. Remember when we were at the gym every like one or two Sundays? Okay. We're at the gym, right? And, and it had been a crazy week. And I had every good reason. I just didn't get to it like I should have gotten to it. And, and, and I got up and... Uh, individual who would who would quickly become a friend of mine. It was that individual's first Sunday, and my my he sat in the back of the room like this. <laughs> I'm just like oh, and that gym was horrible to speak in. I mean, it was like an echo chamber, and I backhanded it. It probably didn't sound that bad, but it was horrible inside. And I said to myself, I will never, ever, ever do that again. And I haven't. And I haven't. I think when we speak for God, and I want to use that term very lightly in terms of what I think I'm actually saying, because I'm not equal to God, and God doesn't mean me to speak for him. At the same time, I occupy a unique role, and I handle the Scripture on a weekly basis, and that responsibility is very important to me. And so when I'm thinking about a text that we're going through, and it's one of the reasons why we go through books of the Bible, because it keeps me disciplined in the Word of God. I ask questions like, what is the biblical evidence of what we're talking about? And, and how is what we're talking about today or the illustrations that I use consistent with the cause of Christ? You know, how and what I'm saying, how is it consistent with the various lists that, that exist in the Bible? You know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We'll get another one this weekend in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. How, how, what I am saying, is it consistent with the biblical evidence? Is it consistent with the cause of Christ? Is it consistent with the lists that exist? Is it consistent across the board? So if I'm going to offend one side, do I equally offend the other side? And I love to offend both sides, especially when it comes to politics. Is what I'm saying kind of opposite of what the world says? Because frequently Jesus says, the world says this, but I tell you this. You've experienced this, but I tell you this. So if the world says you should want power, you should want influence, you should want this, you should want that, I'm kind of probably going to think, well, maybe we shouldn't want those things because that's how the world defines success. And then once all of that is percolating, many times before I ever reach for a commentary, I'll ask, what is the, the witness, the testimony, the activity of the Spirit in my life? 
And then I'll lay that up against the best evangelical thought in commentary form and not make sure I'm off in some faraway land. Because I don't ever want to leave my sermon prep on the table ever again. Because there's too much at stake. And like has happened over the last couple weeks, a couple weeks ago my friend Carl asked me a question in email form. This last week my friend Derek asked me a question in email form. Today my friend Scott asked me a question in email form, uh, rather phone form. Yeah, I want to be open to questions. I want to be open to saying, hey, I think you missed it here, or it's not quite right, or something. Explain this to me how you see it this way. I don't want to live in a vacuum. I don't want to be so certain of what I think I believe that I'm not willing to listen to wisdom spoken into my life. But, but no, when I'm challenged, I'm also going to ask the same questions of the person who's challenging me. Well, what is the biblical evidence? And what is the consistency with the cause of Christ? And what is the consistency with various lists that exist in the Bible? And are we being consistent? And this is this opposite of the world. And what is the witness testimony activity of the Spirit in our lives? What else can we say to these things? What else can we say to these false prophets, these false teachers? <laughs> if I'm you, I'd be discerning. <laughs> if I'm you, I'd be gracious, but I would be resolved in saying, if you hear something that, that hits you sideways, that you ask. You ask. Explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old. What are false teachers? How, how does one distinguish? Does a teacher point you to a deeper, deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Is, is the name of Jesus Christ elevated? Does, does the teacher seem to be in it for personal gain? Is, is there an assertion of self over the cause of Christ? Is there assertion of self over, over submission to authority? Is there assertion of self over how one expresses themselves sexually or how one expresses um, themselves with, with the things that they have? Is there a greed vibe that seems to be going on? Does the teacher give it away? And obviously everything that I'm saying for the teacher is, I think, arguably true for the follower of Jesus Christ, since I think we're all supposed to be teachers, influencers in our sphere of influences. Does a false teacher, does a teacher make me, make me feel good about myself? Or am I forced to come face to face with a challenge to my personal belief systems? How does, a, uh, how does a teacher handle the essentials? The essentials relating to, to eternity, salvation, following Jesus Christ. The non-essentials, but that are still important, right? Because there's a whole subset of non-essentials. They don't speak specifically to our salvation, but they're still super important to God. And then there's a whole bunch of non-essentials that aren't important really at all. 
but we discuss them and we wrestle with them and we theologically split hairs over them. As you're listening to a teacher and attempting to understand, what's the testimony of the Spirit in your life? And I know this one can be gooey, this one can be fuzzy. And so the testimony of your, the Spirit, w- without the, all the other things going on, it can just be you know, a force of our own will. Is a teacher willing to admit that they're wrong? Is a teacher willing to listen to correction? It's a short list, but you can probably add more to it. I want us to be serious about the Word of God. I want us to be serious about the call of Christ. That's why I do what I do. I don't do what I do to forward a political agenda. That's my heart. You can say yes, you can say no, you can disagree with me. And, I, and if you can challenge me on that one, please do, because I, I want to be better at this. But I've given myself to this thing, and please, there's no one attacking me. No one's, no one's against me, okay? I don't feel attacked by anyone. So don't, don't anyone go looking, oh, who's he talking about? I'm not talking about anyone. I'm talking about the text, what the text says what the expectation should be of a person who teaches for God and what a bad teacher looks like. Because I don't want to be described in these 20-some verses. Because I think following Jesus Christ with my life is the most coolest thing in the world. And vocationally, getting to do it in the church I think I'm the luckiest guy in the room. I think that's good enough. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And it's you, and it's your son, and it's your spirit, and it's your book. It's your church. It's not our church. It's not my church. It's your church. It belongs to your Son, Jesus Christ. We are enabled by your Spirit. And as such, we don't have to live in fear, but we do have to live with a healthy amount of respect for how we behave and how we talk and how we teach. So find us worthy of being good teachers, not bad teachers. Find us worthy of being people who listen to you as opposed to listen to something else. Find us faithful, O great God, as we diminish self and all of its related sins and elevate Christ in our life. Father, thank you for this time. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.